Obviously, uh, good morning to everybody. So glad that all of you could join us here and at home. As most of you know, we've been in the book of Daniel, which has been exciting uh, for the past several months. And as I mentioned two weeks ago, we're going to go ahead and take a break out of the book of Daniel until about mid-January. Um, for the month of December, we're going to start a three-week series basically today and over the next couple of weeks um, in a series that's called uh, The Gift of Jesus Christ. I mean, he's the reason for the season, amen? Uh, none of this just happy holidays stuff. I mean, Jesus Christ is Lord, King. He's the reason for the season. So we're going to celebrate him and the gift that he is to us. And so this morning and for the next two Sundays, uh, just plan on, on, on something a little bit different. And so, but the icing on the cake, I think, as Marcus probably already uh, announced, is that uh, at the end of the month, on December 23rd, which we affectionately call Christmas Eve Eve, it's gonna, we're going to have a Christmas Eve Eve service, and we want you to come here. It's uh, going to be a candle lighting service. It's going to be on December 23rd, which is Wednesday night. We'll, have, we'll be able to light candles. We're going to sing songs, and just uh, the gospel will be preached. It'll, uh, we'll have some fellowship together. It'll be sweet. Well, we want to invite you to come out here uh, out on the December 23rd, um, so that'll be a, a wonderful time to kind of close up the holiday season, and then that, obviously that week you're going to enjoy Christmas together with your family. Um, but our desire is in the month of December is that we would just kind of pull back from everything that's been going on and, and focus once again on what the gift, a gift the Lord Jesus has been to us, and particularly, uh, you know, spend that time in the Word and in fellowship more and focused on the things and the good things He's given us. And so with that, I'm going to ask uh, Marcus uh, Corder, Pastor Marcus Corder, come up and read some scriptures for us. Uh, and while you're doing that, please make your way to Matthew chapter 2. Open to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be in verses, basically, basically verse 11, but verses 1 through 12 this morning. Marcus will read. Good morning, everybody. This is the, the New King James Version, so Matt's will probably be a slightly bit different in the ESV. Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Amen. Uh, the kids can be dismissed, I guess, uh, with Pastor Arthur. 
Thank you, Pastor Marcus, for reading the opening verses of chapter 2 there, uh, where we are introduced to some famous Bible characters known as the three wise men, although there weren't three. There were probably hundreds. Uh, But they're also called the Magi, and and they've come to worship the king from from the east. They've come to seek him out. And now we really don't know who these wise men are. They're probably... Obviously, more than three. There's probably a whole caravan of them. I know we like to say there's three of them because there was a gift, but most likely they were traveling in a pack. And uh, we do know that um, they came from the east. That's what we do know. And they're also called wise men. If you guys have been following along in Daniel, what we do know is that the Jews were in captivity several hundred years before this uh, in Babylon for 70 years. And if you remember during that time, uh, we were introduced to a bunch of people called wise men, and they were astrologers, and they were, uh, you know, they were just basically weird guys. And, but basically, Daniel rose up among their ranks. God ordained that he would be blessed and all these things. And, and basically, the, 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 Daniel became in charge of the wise men. He had, he had influence over them all. And what basically happened <clears throat> is that although time went on and they died off, Many people think that the wise men from the East who are called wise men probably were astrologers and, and all these types, of, of, types of, of, of leadership within a certain Middle Eastern uh, capital at the time. Uh, they probably understood somewhat of, about the future coming Messiah from the Jews who were captive several hundred years earlier, and so it come down through the ages, most likely to these wise men. But nevertheless, we do know that these wise men were actually, um, uh, they were guided by a supernatural star. God supernaturally intervened to these guys from the east, and they came and they, they saw the star, and they started following it, and they started to make their, their way west. And apparently from the scriptures, you can see that they were going from town to town asking you know, hey, where's the Jewish Messiah going to be born? Where is he going to be born? And finally, they came to Jerusalem. They ran into Herod. And, and obviously, Herod has got some pretty bad intentions there. He likes his power. And uh, basically, uh, he, Herod consults with the scribes. And the scribes say, hey, that's going to happen in Jerusalem. So they start heading to Jerusalem. And when they head to Jerusalem, the star apparently reappears over the house where the Messiah was to be born. God's divinely guiding these guys. And then verse 11, which is where we're honing down. There's so much to talk about in that chapter, but this is where we're going to be this month. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. We'll talk about not worshiping Mary later. But they fell down and worshiped him. And then out of that worship, what did they do? They opened their treasures. They offered him what? Gifts. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. And it's on these three gifts that I want to focus over the next three weeks. The symbolism and the significance of these gifts is is important in the season we're in. And as we look over the next three Sundays at gold and frankincense and, and myrrh, each of these say something about Christ. They say something about him that's important for us to know. And actually, it's his gift to us. Even though they were giving those gifts to him, they symbolize something that he has actually given to us as a blessing. And so as we begin this morning, we're going to do something a little different. Instead of just going gold, 
frankincense, and myrrh. I'm going to go dyslexia on you and go backwards, which is myrrh, frankincense, and gold. You know, how many, we're going to start with the gift of myrrh this morning that the wise men gave to Jesus. Uh, myrrh is such a strange sounding word. How many of you have heard of that outside of the Bible? Probably you're some essential oil people. Uh, no. But how many of you are, have like myrrh on your Christmas list? You know, it's like you're going to go take those Amazon gift cards and go buy yourself some myrrh. Anybody? Like no one. Like, I just look at this and yeah, me neither. What in the world is myrrh? I mean, how many of you like said, hey, you know, grandma got me some myrrh, you know, it's like, thanks a lot there. No, actually, it was really cool. Uh, apparently, it was a resin that came out of cuts in the bark of a certain tree in, found in Arabia. And we know from back as far as Genesis 37 that it was traded. Uh, we have caravans trading from Egypt and all these other places. So it was a, it was a valuable uh, commodity. And it, it was often mixed with other spices and oils to make perfume. Uh, the perfume was used to actually consecrate the temple, to consecrate uh, the priests in Exodus 30. It was used as perfume um, by the woman in the Song of, Song of Solomon, as well as the woman depicted in Proverbs 7, and also by Queen Esther in her six-month-long day spa. And so it was widely used perfume. It was very sought-after perfume, very fragrant. Another use of it was, if you remember, that um, in Mark chapter 15, 13, it was mixed with wine, and it became a painkiller, actually. And it was given to Jesus, which he rejected. And so there was a painkiller element to it. So myrrh was this really fragrant um, uh, spice. It was very valuable, and it was traded mainly using, used for perfume or potpourri or whatever they were doing there. But most significantly in what we're focusing on this morning, uh, because of its fragrance, it was used by the Jews in their burials. And obviously, the burial of our Lord Jesus Christ. John nineteen thirty nine through 40 tells us that along with um, Joseph of Arimathea, <clears throat> Nicodemus, also who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came, bring a mixture, came, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And so they took the body of Jesus. That is, they asked for the body of Jesus from Pilate. Pilate gave it to him. They took it down from the cross, and they prepared it for burial. They took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths and with the spices as, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And so here in John 19, uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus used myrrh in the burial of Jesus. And the significance of myrrh is that it is symbolic in many ways of the death of Jesus Christ. Now you know what I, I wanted to start with, the death of Jesus Christ. It's actually the first Sunday in, in, uh, uh, of the month, and we celebrate communion on the first Sunday of the month. And I think it's fitting to go backwards from the death of Jesus, which is really the entry point of all the riches and blessings that we have in Christ, and then move to the frankincense and the myrrh and just kind of highlight from there. So work our way to just the blessings. Obviously, they're all blessings. But it's rather somber, the death of Jesus Christ. Now, when the wise men gave the gifts, I'm sure they had no idea of the significance of any of these things. They were just giving the most valuable things that they would give uh, to, uh, to a king. You had gold and frankincense and myrrh, and we'll get into the significance of the other later in the month. 
They had no idea that it was in connection with his death or looking forward to his death. They were just bringing those valuable gifts out of the overflow of their heart in worship. Nevertheless, the Holy Spirit was painting a picture with these gifts that speak to the truth, and specifically Myrrh, speaking to the truth that the Son of God came to die. I find it ironic, you know, every Christmas we, we celebrate the little baby Jesus kind of looking back at him, but looking at that child, that child was born to die. His destiny was death. The cross is why he came from the beginning. He had a death sentence on him. You know, the Jews could never wrap their minds around the idea that their Messiah would die. That their Messiah would actually be executed and die. Their thought is that he would rule and reign as king, which he will. But they never thought that he would die. They had a hard time coming to grips with this as Jews. They thought he would come and throw off the shackles of their oppressors. The Romans would be pushed out of the way. And this is why they ushered him in on the week of his actual execution. They ushered him in crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, thinking he was going to ascend to the throne, throw off Rome and start the kingdom of God right then and there. We know the disciples couldn't hack it either. They didn't understand. Even Jesus told them several times, three times that we know of and, and, and possibly more, that he was going to be betray and die at the hands of the elders. They still didn't get it. Peter took a sword out the night that he was going to be betrayed and decide to change that and stop that and fight against that. Jesus told him, put away your sword because it was God's plan for him to go to the cross. If you remember even the fact after the resurrection, Jesus dies three days later. He raises again, in case you missed that part of the story. He, he's, a, he's alive, and he appears to the two disciples walking on the road of Emmaus who don't recognize him. And what does he say to them? He, he's hearing their story. They're, they're, they're totally just bewildered at what's going on. They've heard that perhaps Jesus rose, but they're just thrown off. They're just blown away. Why in the world did he die? They couldn't get it. And then Jesus talks to them as he often does, direct truth and love. Luke 24, 25 through 27, he says, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? It was necessary. His death was necessary. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Again, the Bible study that I want to be at. Jesus just unwrapping all of the Old Testament and saying, see, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me. All pointing to this moment that you just experienced. Wow, that's amazing, isn't it? Jesus was born to die. And although there are several reasons why and ramifications, the main reason that Jesus came to die was to save sinners. To save sinners. You know, that term sinners is one that's thrown around a lot. And, and obviously, how many of you, like, as soon as you hear the word sinner, you just go, oh my gosh, get me out of here. I don't want to hear about your sinner term. Listen, it's King James. It's an archery term. It means you miss the mark. 
You try to shoot the middle, but you're never going to do it consistently over and over and over and over and over. You miss in perfection because you are a sinner. It is your nature to miss. Anybody else relate? But that's the idea. The term that's thrown a lot lot um, around a lot. There we go. Dyslexia. But to be clear, Ephesians kind of lays it out for us, and I'm going to paraphrase Ephesians chapter 2. It describes a sinner as one who lives by following after the ways of the world. They don't follow after God. They truly follow after the world. They follow after their own desires, their own appetites. Are you listening? Are you living after your own desires, in your own appetites, your own direction? Are you your own God? Are you going your own destiny? Are you charting your path? Are you looking out? Do you know what that means? God calls that a sinner. It's someone who is under the sway of the devil. You go, well, I'm not a devil worshiper. Well, listen, it's either direct or indirect. The enemy doesn't care. He just wants your worship and affections to be directed somewhere else. Someone who is spiritually dead is another way that Ephesians 2 puts it, spiritually dead, ultimately led by their own desires, not God's. I hope this is offensive. It's offensive to me because it challenges me in my own heart, my own mind. Because when I read that and I see God's perfect standard, I see I don't meet it. The Bible declares that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You ever have a pastor up there telling you that you, you know, that they don't sin? Oh, my gosh. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us has fallen short. Romans 3.23, every person is a sinner before the holy creator of the universe. And God makes it clear time and time again in Scripture that this is the way of man. Isaiah again says, we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. Anybody have a cat? I mean, dogs generally are pretty pretty obedient. I don't know. Some of you probably can scoff right now. But cats, like whatever they want, whenever they want, they're just going to do it their way. It's like we are by nature cats. We have turned everyone to his own ways, whatever we want, whatever we want, however we want it, right? And when it's convenient for us, we follow. But we, by nature of being sinners, we reject God. We don't want his ways. We don't want to have to do them. It's like darkness and light. And Jesus was sent to die for those people. And who are those people? It's us. Every single one of us. But real quickly, why do we need to be saved? Why do sinners need to be saved? So they break a bunch of things, they do things, they don't follow God. Why do they need to be saved? That's important. We forget this about uh, when we're sharing the gospel. We say, hey, believe Jesus died and rose again. But there's, there's a context to it. What is he saving us from? Well, first of all, death. Death is a hot topic lately, if you haven't noticed. 
it's serious. A lot of loved ones are dying. People get stuff. They pass away, I think, because of the coronavirus. Obviously, there's more focus on it now than ever about mortality rates. You only have one of these tries, right? We're walking around, and this is it right now. So it's interesting. The Lord came to save us from death. God declares that the soul that sins shall die. Have you sinned? Have you broken God's law? Guess what? His command is that you shall die. The soul that sins shall die. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. You want to know what your payment for sin is? You die. You might say, well, Christians are dying like everyone else. Jesus isn't saving any of them from death. And you would be astutely correct. Every one of us drops dead. But you see, God has a different idea of death. And here's the important. I'm not getting into the semantics. I'm, I'm laying out what God says about death. See, you talk about death and you think about your physical body stopping working. But when God thinks of death, he looks at, at it from, as a spiritual condition with both spiritual and physical ramifications. When we look at death, we go, oh, no, I don't want to die. I don't want to stop working and being here. Listen, when you die, you don't stop. Your body stops. You continue. What then? You see, we look at death from our angle. We are physical. God looks at it from spiritual. He's the creator. He created us spiritual beings with bodies to, well, it's kind of like you getting in a car. Your car is just sitting there without, it, without something to tell it what to do. One day, you're going to get out of your car. After it's old. Or perhaps when you're young. But we look at it from a, a physical perspective, a biological perspective. We assume life is biological. We look at life as biological. It is not just biological. God, who looks at, who is spirit, looks at death as a spiritual condition that has both physical and spiritual ramification. Death, from God's perspective, is having a severed relationship from Him. He is life. He gives all life. He created you. He created this universe. It is for Him. He is the author of life. He made you. He brought you into this world, into life. And to try to live apart from Him, which is what we do, is not life at all. This is what Jesus came to tell us about. Death from God's perspective is having a severed relationship from Him. Who is life? You see, this, this is the Garden of Eden. Remember the Garden of Eden? Adam was told in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what will happen? You shall surely, what? Die. Is God a liar? What happened to Adam? 
Eve ate, he ate. Did they die? No. That's because God has a different definition of death than you do, than I do. What happened at that moment? Their countenance fell. They became naked. They realized their shame. They became shameful. We try to push away shame. Shame is a great thing. When it comes to sin and God, we should experience shame in things we do that are wrong. And it should lead us to change. What happened is they ran. They tried to hide. They were full of shame because of their sin. Their bodies, they realized how sinful they were. And I believe that they were unclothed from the glory that they had. I think when we go to heaven, we're going to be glorified and meaning we're going to radiate light. And I think they lost that. That's my own personal opinion. Don't take that to the bank. But they lost their relationship with God. They hid from Him when they had been walking with Him. They started to blame one another. They didn't take personal responsibility over their own sin, all these types of things. You see, the relationship was severed. In that moment, they began to die physically. You see, spiritual death leads to physical death. That's why we die, because all have sinned. Physical death's what we all fear, isn't it? You know, I'd like to say with perfect thing, I don't fear death, but I think we do. But what we really need to fear is what the book of Revelation calls as the second death. There's a second death on the horizon. When those who have rejected Christ, who have rejected life itself, are cast from eternity into a lake of fire, eternally separated from God. In other words, the separation that happens now continues on into eternity forever and ever and ever. You don't want to be with God? Okay. He'll seal the deal after this life. And it is not a place where we're going to party and be there too. Our friends are going to be there too. I'm on a highway to hell. It's nothing like that. Torment. I mean, how many of you have have had a bad day physically? Nothing compared to that. Jesus came to save us from death. Not only physical death with the promise of the resurrection, but the second death that is coming. Hebrews 9.27 declares, It is appointed for man once to die, and then after that comes what? Comes the judgment. Notice I'm starting the Christmas season a little rough here. Appointed once to die and then to judgment. You see, just because your body stops working doesn't mean you stop. When a person dies, the very next thing is that They are brought before God. They are judged. I don't understand how time works outside of this domain. I don't understand the eternality of God. But when we die, it says that then comes the judgment. 
How God works that out chronologically, I have no idea. But 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This does not mean that you work your way to heaven. That is not what it's saying. What it is saying is that who you are will be evidenced in what you do. Believers will show the fruit of it, and non-believers will show the fruit of it. The judgment that is coming is often called the day of judgment, the day of the Lord. It's the day when you and I will stand before God, and He judges us based upon what we've done while we were physically alive, good or bad. Revelation 21, 11 through 15. I want you to hear this for a second because we're going to get to the good part in just a minute. He describes that day like this, and then I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it. And from his presence, the earth and the sky fled, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The dead standing before the throne. What does that tell you about when you die? You're alive, in a sense. Standing before the throne. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And, okay, the sea, it's like, okay, I know, it's like, okay, the fish ate you and you got, you're part of the environment now. Listen, God's able to figure things out. He put it together, he can put it back together. The thing is, everything, there's no place you can hide. This is a day where everything is gone, everything is laid bare, and everything is brought before God. The sea gave up their dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. Even death and Hades, hell itself. Everyone who's dead, everyone who's gone to hell, which is a holding tank for after the second death, was brought out, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found and written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. That's the second death. This is what Jesus was talking about. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is why Jesus went to great, great extent to paint the picture of the necessity of us to know that we have, we're at war with God by our very nature. And we are all living in darkness, and the light came down to shine upon us. And you either scatter like cockroaches, or you go to the light like a moth and lose your life. And find it. You see, we've got a problem. Mankind's in a perpetual state of sin against God. Mankind's going to physically die, and then mankind is going to face the righteous judgment of God. Everybody got that? Serious stuff. It's the most pressing issue of your day. It is the most pressing issue of your life. It is the most pressing issue facing, facing the United States of America. It is the most pressing issue facing the world. Everything that's going on pales in comparison to this. And almost everyone ignores it, dismisses it, 
The absolute pandemic that we need to be primarily concerned about is the pandemic of sin that is leading to the judgment of the universe. And we've all got the virus. It's in us. It's in the environment. It's in me. It's in you. We transmit it to one another. We can't get rid of it. It's here, and it has a 100% mortality rate with no cure. It's here. Just a matter of time. Just a matter of time. And the ramifications are eternal. Francis Chan, he had that illustration where he took a piece of rope on a stage and he painted the end of this rope red. You know? He says, we're so concerned about the red part. He says, this is your life. We're so concerned about, oh, I'm going to buy a car. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to learn some stuff. Or, you know, I've got to pay. Or I'm tired of this and blah, 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 blah. And all the plans we have in this little red dot. And then the rope goes on and on and on and off the stage. This is what you need to be concerned about. And what you do here determines that. The cure of sin is beyond our ability to fix ourselves, guys. The cure had to come from outside. The cure had to come from outside, from untainted humanity. The cure had to come from the uncontaminated. It had to come from somewhere else. Life had to come to death. Life had to come to death. And what we see in the gift of myrrh is that God, that the God that the mankind so grievously violates over and over and over and over every day, knowing and unknowingly. Because, listen to this, if you haven't heard anything, because he is merciful. Because he is love. Because he is gracious. There is no one more loving. There is no one more merciful. There is no one more gracious than God. There is no one more just than God. And that is why hell exists. And that is why he sent his son. Because all those things had to be reconciled. Because it was his good pleasure. It was just his good pleasure, Ephesians says, Ephesians 1. Just talk about his good pleasure. Because it's in his heart to reach out to rebels, to reach out to sinners, to reach out those who are lost, who don't care about him, all these things. It's in his heart to reach out and to save. Because of that's who he is, he sent us the cure that we would not perish. John 3.16, for God so loved the world not based upon what you've done for him, what I've done for him, but based upon purely of who he is, just his love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes upon him shall not what? Perish. What kind of perish are you talking about? All of them. But have eternal life. John 3.36 also says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey in the Son shall not see life. You see how life, God frames life? Whoever believes in the, in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son to obey is to believe 
shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. How many of you like that verse? The wrath of God remains on him. We want the wrath of God to be gone. God's gift to us, the costliest gift that ever has been given, is that the penalty of our sin was put upon his son on the cross. (laughs) That we might believe and we might receive forgiveness and have everlasting life that we might have a restored, unsevered relationship with Him for all eternity, all eternity. That we would, although we die physically, we would be raised to new life just as Christ was raised from the dead. First spiritually, then physically. And we will rule and reign with Christ forever. And so, Although the wise men didn't see it, the myrrh represented the sacrificial death that God and His good pleasure set in motion. And just real quickly, we see this plan throughout all of Old Testament. Now, if this doesn't convince you that God exists, I don't know what does. Because one thing that God proves on how He's God is He tells us what's going to happen before it happens, then it happens. And it's so true and so accurate that everybody looks back at it and goes, no, that couldn't have happened. Someone had to rewrite that, definitely. And all the people who don't believe gather together and tell you that it's not true. No, he actually wrote it before it happened. And we see his plan, the indications that his son would die before it happened. The first one I want to recall, just a few of them in Genesis 22, where God tested Abraham. If you remember that, it's pretty pretty jarring piece of scripture, but Genesis 22, where God tells Abraham to take his son, his only son whom he loved, the son of promise, and to go sacrifice him on a mountain he would tell him to go. Now, face value, how many of you are like, that's weird? Well, thankfully, this is, God's just doing an illustration here. This is not something he's asking anyone else to do at any time, any place. Abraham's a special guy with a special son, and it's a special picture that God's painting for us. So God calls Abraham to take Isaac and go sacrifice him. Abraham and Isaac go, father and son, on a three-day journey. And it tells us in verse 6 of chapter 22 that Abraham laid the wood for the burnt offering upon Isaac, and he had the knife. So you had the son with the wood on his back bringing it, and the father had the knife in the fire. And they head off to the mountain of sacrifice. And so Isaac is carrying the wood on his back, and the father has his knife in the fire. <coughs> and when they get close, Isaac asks his father, he says, Hey, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham's answer is profound. He says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Apparently at this point, Isaac doesn't understand what's going on yet. Isaac is not a little boy. He's like 33. In other words, Abraham trusted God to provide for the sacrifice. And when they got there, Abraham bound Isaac, his son. Apparently, Isaac willingly did this. And Abraham was about to sacrifice his only son, whom he loved. you got to understand how much this guy loved him. I don't have time to go into it. And Hebrews tells us that as he was about to do that, his reasoning for doing this is that he trusted God so much, his promise so much, 
that through Isaac, all the nations would be blessed, that he would have to raise him from the dead. There's no way for, if this guy dies that your promise is going to go forward. You'll have to raise him from the dead. I'm just going to obey you. And that's what saved Abraham, basically. It was accredited to him as righteousness for believing in the death and resurrection. That's the picture looking forward. So Abraham was about to sacrifice his son in obedience, but God stopped him. He stopped him. And there was a ram caught in the thicket, and they offered it. But basically, when you look at that picture, they went to Mount Moriah. Now, how many of you know where Mount Moriah is? I'll give you a hint. Where do you think it would be? The exact spot where Jesus was crucified. 2,000 years later, another father led another son to that spot with wood on his back. And at that time, the father did not hold back. And the knife was plunged down, so to speak. The nails were in the hands, and he bled out and died. It was the father's plan for the son to die. It's very graphic foreshadowing of the son. And what is illustrated in there, really quickly, one more illustration, is that there was to be a lamb that was sacrificed. And that lamb, Isaac, was thinking, the lamb, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? That lamb became a picture of a sacrifice that was yet to come. Most of you know in Hebrews, the Hebrews were captives and slaves in, in Egypt for the better part of 400 years. It started off well, but then it ended in brutal slavery. A, a highly oppressed people. And as Arthur said last week, the cries went up to God and God sent the deliverer to save them. He sent Moses, right? A deliverer. God sends a deliverer to rescue his people. All these are pictures and types. People in the bondage of Egypt, and he sends in a deliverer to rescue them. And there were 10 plagues, and the 10th plague was the worst of them all in that the firstborn son or the firstborn animal would die from every family. That was the, a destroying angel was going to be sent to destroy everybody. You see, Egypt would not let the people of God go. It kept holding on to them, would not let go. And so God made it increasingly difficult until finally this plague would come through and kill all the firstborn of those in the land, except there was a provision that anyone who took the blood of a lamb sacrificed and put it on the doorpost and were inside, when the destroying angel came by, he would look at the blood and pass over them. That's a very quick overphrase, uh, Passover. There's a lot more there, and I might have got some things wrong. But the main point is that the destroying angel came through and passed over those who had the blood of the lamb on the door. And those people were safe inside, and what were they eating? They're eating the lamb, amongst other things, and bread. The connection is that the lamb died and they lived. God's judgment passed over them because the lamb died. Now, did the lamb do anything? No, it's a lamb. But it's what the lamb represents. When Jesus Christ appeared on the scene and John the Baptist 
saw him, who was the forerunner, the announcer of the Messiah that was coming, what did he say? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That does what to the sins of the world? Takes away. How much? All of it. And it's not talking about everybody's sins are gone. It's talking about you. For those who believe your sins are taken away, He died for you. For those who do what? Who put the blood of the Lamb on the door, who appropriate the blood of Jesus to their life, who believe upon the Son of God. Have you believed upon Jesus Christ? Believe that He died. Believe that you are who God says you are. You're a sinner before Him and that His gracious Son came and died on your behalf out of deep love and adoration. But He will not put the blood on you. It's been shed. It's there. But you must agree. Say yes. And that is an unconditional surrender. That is not a, okay, I'm going to live my life and you do it. This is death to life, darkness to light. A total surrender of your life to Him. I am, I am nothing and you are now everything. I believe. And what happens is God in His grace, He reaches down to wicked, vile people like me. And He makes you clean. Not partially clean. He takes away all the sin because all of our sin and all the punishment that was due us was nailed fully to him. And God did not withhold his wrath. He poured out his wrath on his son completely. He died, you live. You don't live apart from him. You live now for him. And see, he didn't stay dead. He rose again. And now your life is in him. You see, the gospel is the hope of the world. Jesus was destined to die that you might live, that I might live. And it is For anybody who would believe, the call is there right now. Surrender your life to Jesus. And what keeps us from that? Pride. No, no, no. Yes, give up. Surrender. And you know, it's just, it's not, you know, it's it's purposeful that we're going to have communion now, that we're going to meditate upon the lamb that was sacrificed that we might live, that the judgment of God might pass over. What grace we've been given. This is a holy moment when we come together as the church. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, they were celebrating. What, what were they celebrating? Yeah, the Last Supper, Passover. And Jesus sits there and goes, you're looking back to that lamb when God passed over and delivered you out of bondage, the bondage of sin. But I want you to realize tomorrow I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to free you from sin. And when you get together and you drink this cup and you eat this cracker, do it in remembrance of me. That my body was broken, my blood was shed. Blood, where there is no shedding of blood, there is no taking away of sins. Jesus died, the Lamb of God, the perfect sinless Son of God, died on the cross for you and for me. And his body was broken. It's interesting that Jesus said in John 6, 53, somewhere around there, he says, guess what? 
Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, there is no life in you. You know that? But whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is what? True food. And my blood is true drink. This is a cracker and juice. Everybody needs to know that. It's what it points towards. It's him. It's simply remembering him. And so when we look and we take these things together, don't do it flippingly. flippantly. Paul says some people have done this casually. Don't do that. If your heart's not right with one another, get it right. Because this represents a freedom from sin and a unity with the body of Christ through a person who died. So, I think it's fitting that we focus on the myrrh this morning. And we'll get to the gold. But we're going to focus on the myrrh just this morning and meditate. And so, I'm going to play guitar and, and just for a second. And while I do, just I would encourage you to, if you're, you want to pray with one another, go ahead. Obviously, there's distancing and all those things. Just be considerate of one another in all situations. But maybe someone needs prayer. If you need prayer, raise your hand. Some brother or sister will pray for you. Maybe you need to go work things out between another. Go, go work it out. Maybe you need to go outside and call someone. But let the Lord work in your heart while we just meditate up for a minute. And, and then at your leisure, take the, the communion elements, remembering what they signify. Amen? And then we're going to sing together, and then we'll and then we'll just celebrate as we as we leave. Okay, so why don't you go ahead and begin meditating now, and we'll just uh, go ahead and take it as as you wish. <laughs>